You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. All right, we're still in Luke. Um, One of the things now, because we're going through the book of Luke, a lot of people that don't get to preach often, they have like a database of sermons that they can pull from. And now that we have to stick to a book, you have to stick to that scripture reference. So this one's fresh off the press. Uh, I recently, I was in Washington, D.C. most of the week um, on, for my job, and uh, it wasn't very good because I had to stay in the hotel. I was at a conference from 8 to 5 every day, and it's talking about data, and the only thing more boring than the word data is listening to somebody talk about it for 8 to 5 hours, I mean 8 to hours a day. But then I got home a little after midnight Friday night, and now I had to work Saturday, and now I'm here. And so I told him in Sunday school, I'm going to be the first speaker to ever fall asleep in his own message, right? But we're going to do a quick sermon, quick according to my timeline. So that just means I try to stick to the notes, and then we're going to have worship after the sermon. So hopefully this is a time that God will speak to you, and then you'll have a chance to respond in worship after the message. It's revolutionary. If you get scared, feel free to hold the hand next to you. We're all in this together. We're going to make it. Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus flexes his muscles in chapter 19, and he cleanses the temple. And uh, now we pick up in chapter 20. And so if you've ever seen somebody really lose their temper and then have to function in a normal conversation, uh, we get to see that here with Jesus. That's just a few days range probably. And so we have verse, uh, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priest, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him, all of those making up the Sanhedrin. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Let me ask you a question first, he replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? They huddled up, talked over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask, why didn't we believe John? But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied that, this this is a big step for them, by the way, they didn't know. Verse 8, and Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And we'll camp out here for just a second. We get to see in the scriptures that we're going to be reading, and we're going to go through verse 19. The scriptures that we read have the common theme of authority. And we get to see that God's authority is in Jesus in the first eight verses of this chapter. And so as we look at this theme of authority, we see God's authority and how we respond to it. And in the first few chapters here, we see how the culture at the time responded to it. So let's look at Jesus' culture real quick. Let's see where he found himself. He's in a land that is run by Romans. There, right now, the Romans had all domination there. And so he's in that land. So there's some political uncertainty, um, probably some economic uh, problems as a result because they had to pay a lot of taxes to the Roman government. They weren't happy about it. So there's some economic issues that we could probably talk about. 
In the midst of that, we see that there's a religious system that's corrupt. Um, for the most part, a lot of the priests and the leaders there, they were using it to give pride, to feed their own pride, kind of oppress the people. And we see a lot of religious traditions and rituals that were really empty. They were just man-made. And so we don't see the power of God in any of this because it's just man-made, right? And so Jesus finds himself in that culture with those dynamics going on. So let's fast forward it to our day and see where do we find ourselves? What does our culture look like? I think political uncertainty is an issue. Um, uh, We could say there's economic issues that we're dealing with. Um, I know working in the nonprofit world that a lot of Americans are out of jobs. They're not working the hours that they want to work, not making the money they want to work. I look around and I see that there's religious traditions that are corrupt and failing. We see the health and wealth theology doesn't really go well in a recession, but people still buy into it. Um, And then we see that there's religious rituals and traditions that are broken, they're messed up, and they're they're man-made things that are not getting people to God anymore. God's not in them. They lack God's power. They lack God's authority. And so just like in Jesus' day, when he comes into this situation, he shows up. And he uh, created the universe. Ever heard of it? Um, He shows up. He has this new dynamic now that nobody has before. Jesus is able to speak with authority, much like the prophets before him spoke with authority, but even more so. And so in the middle of all of this this turmoil, God shows up in flesh in Jesus. I I, I like flying. I like traveling. But every time I do it, I think chance I'm going to die. <laughs> I don't go to Walmart and think that, but when I get on a plane, it's like, for some reason, I feel like I could die, right? And so I'm sitting there on the plane, and I never let the feeling of that I could die try to stop me from anything. I kind of like it. <laughs> There's a chance I'm going to die doing this. Yeah, that'll, that quote will be at my funeral. Uh, so anyways, <clears throat> I always think, you know, I could, I could die doing this. And if we're going to illustrate what Jesus' presence was in that culture, this is what I think is the closest we can get to it. I'm sitting on a plane, and these are the thoughts that go through my head. That wing, it comes off. We're all dead. One screw comes off, we're probably going to die, right? And so I'm sitting there thinking the integrity of the plane, how old it looks, and then I think, man, okay, Ledger, Ledger, don't worry about it. There's inspections. People have to inspect these things before they let them go in the air. But then I think... What if the inspector approaches their job like the girl at Wendy's that can't get the onions off my burger? Like, what if they approach the inspection like that? What am I going to do? And I'm probably going to die. When I'm thinking all of that, an old man comes and sits down beside me. Hypothetical. Don't buy into this too much. Um, He sits down, and he sees that I'm worried, and he says, you know, I helped design these planes. I'm an engineer. I was at the table, and we drew this one together. Before that, I flew for years with the U.S. Air Force, so I know a lot about flying. And let me just tell you, we did these tests, strength tests, and all of this, and he goes through all of the the development process for this plane. And then he says, and I happen to know the pilot, he's my son. And he goes through, and okay, yeah, I should be really assured there. But that doesn't even come close to when Jesus comes into our lives and is able to assure us. Because the pilot can't look at me, and the developer of the plane can't look at me and say, I choose to hold this plane together. If I ever think about not holding it together, it will cease to exist. Um, the, the picture of God from the beginning is this, is that he speaks creation into existence, and then we get this, this verbiage in John 1 
that has us to believe that God actually sustains creation with his word. And that if Jesus ever wanted the world to end, it would be done. But he actually holds it with his breath. And that guy is showing up in a time of economic uncertainty, political turmoil, and he's talking, right? And so now we get to see that, yeah, Jesus is in flesh, and he's talking to people. He's God Almighty, and he's talking to us. And he's able to talk about culture and our families and our churches. And he brings with it authority that we don't see anywhere else. And so where our postmodern-ish uh, culture is looking for authority, where everything's somewhat relative, where we don't really know what truth is because everybody has their own truth and they can all be right at the same time. And you can't really call my beliefs wrong unless you can produce evidence that, but even if you produce evidence, it's right for me. And we have this mindset. The culture really wants some stable, consistent authority, something that they can bank on. Parents, your kids want this. They may not say it, but they need it, Right. Uh, and so the culture wants stability. They want h- hardcore authority, and they're not really getting it from anywhere. And so Jesus shows up and he brings it. And he draws a crowd because everybody wants to see where this authority comes from. And he also draws some critics because they don't like this guy speaking with this authority. And so we looked at Jesus' culture back then needed authority, God's authority, and our culture here needs God's authority. It's looking for something that it can bank on, something, something stable. I would love it if Jesus ran for president. He would run as an independent. He would have, be all-knowing. Uh, some politicians already claim that, but we, no, that's not the case. But we get, to see, we get to see God's authority in this passage, and we get to see it in Jesus, and we get to see people's response to God's authority. Okay, so we know God's authority, it's, it's, a, it's supreme. Everyone will respond to it. There's two ways that we'll respond to it. And this is a simple message. We'll respond to God's authority by embracing it, or we'll respond to God's authority by rejecting it. Which leads us to our next passage in verse 9. Now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. We're in chapter 20, verse 9. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So now the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. I know. I'll send my cherished son, some of y'all say beloved son, surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them, Jesus asked? I'll tell you, he will come and he'll kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, Then what does the scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So we get to see God's authority in verses 1 through 8, and now we get to see 
the gospel. We get to see the story of creation in verses 9 through 19. This story was very familiar to the people of the day because, because they were an occupied country. There were, there were owners that would buy vineyards and they would live in Rome running a vineyard there in the land. And people would step up and they would run the vineyard for them. So it was common with the people, they understood it. But the question is, if this is creation, if this is the story of the gospel, then who's who? And so for that, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. And I'm going to read somewhat quickly verses 1 through 6 or 7. Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. This is the story. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land and cleared its stones and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. Verse 4. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did you give me uh, my vineyard, give me bitter grapes? Now, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed. A place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. This is the story of the gospel. This. Jesus says at the beginning, God creates heaven and the earth. He goes through and he makes this vineyard and he goes and he carves it out and it's beautiful. And he leaves leaves it for tenants, us. And so he leaves creation, he's watching over it, and he sees that creation ends up being corrupted through sin. Starts with Adam and Eve and it goes on and on and on. And where God thought he was going to get generation after generation of people hoping he would get people that would praise him and bring him glory... Sin just continues to spread, and we get so depraved, and all we care about is sin. And So what he does is he sends prophet after prophet to us, all of them calling out to us to repent, calling us to return to God over and over again. The Old Testament's full of them. There's also judges that come along. There's priests that come along. There's men and women of God that come along through time, calling out to creation to repent and return to God. And finally, God says, I'm going to send Jesus down there. So he takes his beloved son, he sends him down to, to earth, and what do we do? We like what he says, but we end up choosing sin over the Savior, we murder him, we put him on a cross, and we bury him, right? That's the story of creation. And all of us share responsibility there. The good thing is, is that the grave can't hold Jesus, he beats death, and we'll get to that in a second. But as he sends person after person to creation, a lot of people here at this point, God's authority in the story of creation, will you embrace it or will you deny it? The reasons people deny God's authority are, we hear them all the time. I can't serve a vengeful God. Why is that God so angry? Let me ask you this. If we put ourselves in the place of the owner of the vineyard, what would you do? 
You send person after person. Eventually they kill and murder your son in cold blood. What do you do? I know what I would do. Uh, when I was gone, I mean, I have, for those of you who don't know, I have a 16-month-old little boy named Ethan, and he's just the cutest. He's just really, really cute. Sometimes I look at him, and I'm like, he looks enough like me to, for me to be like, that's my kid, uh, but he looks enough not like me to be cute, right? And so I, I love him. I like picking him up and carrying him around, and I kiss his little cheek, and he smiles, and he's got all his little teeth now. Um, I, I went and saw Real Steel while I was in D.C., and I'm like the only person crying in this really shallow movie because I see this father-son relationship, right? And I'm like, not here, not now. <clears throat> but I love him. And so I read this story. I put myself in the place of the owner, and I know what I'll do. I will use those tenants' bodies to mer- mulch the next crop, right? We're going to spread them out. I know what I'm going to do. And so for the vengeful God comment, we killed his son. Justice is appropriate. And so hell is appropriate. It's, perfectly ju- it's a perfectly just system. How would we respond? We would respond probably more strict than God does because God offers Jesus. And then he says, I still have grace and mercy for those of you that will repent. That's the story of creation. That's the story of the gospel. But a lot of people have Santa Claus God in the sky. <laughs> oh, don't worry about your sin. Just bring your list. And they have God in their minds of what he's like. And it's nothing, there's nothing true about it. He's the father of a murdered son. And now he wants justice, but he's offering grace and mercy out of love. That's the vengeful God excuse. Some people come to Jesus and they look at it and they say, I can't pay these costs. I can't give sin up. I can't do that. I don't want to have to live that life and go to church every Sunday or every other Sunday if it's like modern Christians. Um, so the costs are too high. And then there's the, the one that a lot of us fall into uh, in most churches. We have a false embrace of God's authority. And this is what that looks like. This is the person that prays a prayer And they actually live somewhat good. They have no walk with Jesus whatsoever, right? They pray a prayer a long time ago. They shed a couple of tears. But there's no walk with Jesus. There's no urge to follow Christ or obey him. They go to church every other Sunday. Um, They make it to the appropriate Bible studies. They wear the Christian t-shirts. They have a nice leather-bound Bible from Lifeway. That's the false embrace. They, they've said they believe it. Everybody around them would say they're a Christian, but the truth is, is that the Spirit of God's not in them. God's authority's not in them. And so some of us have that, right? If you're there, you need to get saved. And so they, all these people approach God's authority this way, and that's what denial looks like. We deny it because he's a vengeful God. We deny it because the costs are too high, or we deny it because we just uh, we don't want to get too deep into it. But here's what Jesus does that I love about Jesus, and I love about the gospel, is the gospel's always polarizing. And wherever Jesus goes, he finds people that hate him or they love him. There's really not too many in-betweens there. And Jesus nails it down in Luke eleven twenty three 23, because he says that those that aren't with me, they're actually against me. And those that aren't working with me, 
They're against me. And he, that's a paraphrase. And he also says it in Matthew 12. And what Jesus does is says, you're either for me or you're against me. Don't try and ride and say that you're just not following me right now because that means that you're against me. So he's polarizing. He always does that. And I love him for it. The biggest part of denying God's authority is this, is that you take God and you put yourself in his place. So the people that deny God's authority, they become their own authority and deny God's authority. What does embracing it look like? Embracing God's authority, what I like about salvation, it's always diverse, but it's always the same. There's a few components that are always a part of salvation. There's a few components that are always a part of embracing God's authority. Brokenness over sin. Confession. I look at the story of the farmer and the tenants and I say, you know what? I chose, I chose sin over God. For most of my life, I chose sin over God until now. And so I look and I see that story and I take responsibility for killing God's son. I take responsibility for Jesus' death on the cross. And it breaks me. There's brokenness, there's confession, and then one of the keys to salvation is repentance. And salvation is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. But whenever I got saved, this is what I looked at. I said, you know what? I was despicable. I chose sin over God. I would have crucified Jesus and chosen sin before salvation over and over again. But when I came to salvation, I was broken. I confessed my sin. And I said, you know what? All the stuff that put Jesus on the cross, I don't want to do it anymore. Salvation and repentance at its most basic definition is just stop doing the sin that you're doing. We can get into the 180 and all that stuff, but it's really just stop sinning. And so those, those components are always a part of embracing God. But the beautiful thing about us embracing God's authority in our lives is that now we have the cornerstone we can build our lives on. I have, we have a house that has foundation trouble, all right? It's like if you drop a tennis ball, it will really increase in speed, uh, flow into a corner of the house. Um, it decreases in value because of the foundation trouble. I wish that I had a really good foundation guy that would have built it. So I didn't know Jeff then, so sorry for both of us. Um, but because of that, it's, it's been a problem from the beginning. The idea of the cornerstone was that this is like the base of a foundation. And for us that embrace God's authority, it's the foundation of our life. Now we look at this and say, I'm going to build my marriage off of this. I'm going to build my career off of this. I'm going to build my life on this cornerstone rock. And the great thing is that once I embrace God's authority, God does something awesome. He gives me something to do, and he gives me some authority, which, yeah, we'll get there. And so what he does is, is right before he goes to, uh, we're going to skip a few verses, but when he, in Matthew 28, when he's ascending into heaven, right before he does, he gives the great commission and he tells people what he wants them to do. And he says, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it quickly. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what he does is he says, okay, I've been given all authority so that you can do this. And so now we have God's authority that we've embraced and now we're using his authority in our lives. And so how we respond to God's authority is going to determine how we respond to the authority that he gives us. Once again, there's two options. Are we going to deny or are we going to embrace it? 
Are we going to embrace the authority that God's given us in our life? This is what I think illustrates this best. You're, it's a cop getting off duty. He still has his uniform on. He's got his badge. He's got a pistol. But he's walking into his apartment where he's going to go sit down and relax. On the way from his car to his front door, he sees a man just beating a woman to death a few units down. And he looks and he sees her. She's crying out for help. And he knows this guy's not going to stop. But he's so tired that he continues, walks down in his living room, puts his feet up on the table and sits down. He has all authority to, make a, to, to intervene. He has all authority. He has a gun and a badge. And either probably would have stopped it. But he chose not to stop it. He went in and he cared about himself more. That kind of picture, is that, that's what I look like a lot of times and how I respond to the authority that God's given me. The good thing is this, that Christianity gives us authority in our lives in every role. It's added pressure. It's added responsibility. So for the man that's a Christian, now is just being, he's not just a dad. He's a dad that's, that's now has the weight of spiritual interaction now with his children. He's not just a husband. He's a husband now that has to lead his family and be a pastor for his family. He's not, this isn't just a wife anymore. She's called to help her husband grow in Jesus and spread the gospel. This isn't just a mom anymore. She's called to raise these children up to be warriors for Jesus. I'm not just an employer or, or an employee anymore. I'm somebody that's there to point people to Jesus. And so now the authority that I've been given has added pressure into every role of my life. And because of that, I, call, I live differently than the world lives. Our denial of the roles that God calls us to is one of our greatest sins. James 4, 17. We're gonna, let's flip there real quick. Actually, I'm just going to read it. It says, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then do it not. It's the sin of omission, and it's one of the most vague sins because it kind of covers everything. But it's also one of our worst sins. Because to know what to do and to not do it is this. Okay, I've accepted God's authority. I've responded in salvation. I now have God's authority in my life telling me to do stuff. And God asked me to do something, and I look at him and I say no. Or I just ignore him. So our denial of God, our God-given authority is our denial of God's authority. So let's just look at this real quick. The roles in our life, and we're going to hurry, we're going to close quickly. The roles in our life are this. A dad, I have to lead my family. I have to lead Ethan to the gospel. I can't piddle around with sin. I can't get caught in sin. I can't be lackadaisical about how I follow God. I have to be a leader for my family. As a husband, I have to be a pastor for my wife. I disciple her. I talk to her about spiritual things. And when I fail to do that, it's the sin of omission. And it's me shirking off the authority that God's given me, the responsibilities that God's given me. For the women in here that are married, you're called to be a wife to your husband. You're called to be a helpmate to him. God talks about how essential you are in that marriage. And you're there to help him follow God and lead the family. You're there to follow God, to further your faith, to learn about Christianity and to spread the gospel. You're there to raise up children one day or to raise up children right now that love Jesus and are going to be fruitful. If you are a church member, if you're a church member at Southside, which covers everybody in the room, you're a church member somewhere. Everybody's a church member somewhere. If you're a church member, the authority that God gives you is this, to contribute to the spiritual community, 
That means from the smallest kid sitting next to Christina back there, to the oldest senior adult, to the person that comes in and enjoys our Wednesday night soup night, to sometimes just getting your butt in a seat here on Sunday morning, you are responsible for the spiritual community. Staff share some responsibility. You guys, along with the staff, share all responsibility. And so I would encourage you to do this. I know that people are going to take vacations. Last I checked, in America, we take one or two vacations a year, right? We're not Europe. Those hippies can battle it out over there. We take one or two vacations a year. Most church members now take one or two vacations a month. We have people missing more than 50% of Sundays and actually think that they're a core member of Southside Baptist Church. Let me say this, you aren't. We need you, you should be, but you aren't. It's the megachurch, the megachurch mindset is this. We wish everybody would come, but we really don't need anybody to come. Because statistics say this, if one-tenth of our membership doesn't come this Sunday, we'll still have a full sanctuary. We don't have that luxury, right? One of the reasons that we can't grow a church is because you're so inconsistent in how you come to church that we can't bank on you being here. If you accepted God's authority at salvation, then you accept God's authority in discipleship. The authority that's given to Jesus in chapter 28 of Matthew, when he talks about it, he says, go, and he says, baptize, and he says, teach. And he didn't just say it to just the leaders. He said it to every Christian. Go, baptize, teach. And so now, for you to teach, we need you to be here. And if most, of you, most people in our congregations approach their jobs like they do their church attendance, we'd all be unemployed, Right? And so we really need people to commit to something. We need you to, to turn down the, I don't know, I don't, I, can't, I don't have the luxury of traveling every weekend. I don't know how people do it. I, is there some hidden bed and breakfast in the hills of Mississippi that people disappear to? I don't know how it works. But we need church members to be here. You share responsibility. God's given you authority. If you shirk it, then James 4.17. And so, with God's authority comes all of these different roles that we find ourselves involved in. And this is where where we bring it home. Let me ask you, how have you responded to God's authority this past week? Do you look like a Christian? Let's turn the lights down. I want people, this is self-reflection here. You've accepted God's authority at salvation. There's going to be two people, two types of people in here. You've accepted God's authority at salvation. You're a Christian. There's no doubt about it in your mind. But then these roles that God's called you to, that he's given you authority to be in a parent, to be in a spouse, to being a church member, to being an employee, to being an employer, to being a patron, to being a patriot. All these roles that God's called you to and equipped you to spread the gospel, what are you doing with them? Is the sin of omission eating up your life? Are you constantly filled with sin but still think you're moral because you don't look at porn? What is your response to God's authority overall and what is your response to God's authority that he's given you to take look like? Because it says everything about who you are as a Christian. Everybody here will respond to God when we worship. And the worship team can go ahead and come down. You'll respond in two ways. You're going to embrace it, or you're going to deny it. You're going to embrace God's authority in your life. You're going to fall into place, as Christians have done for hundreds of years. 
or you're going to deny it. Some of you think you're not going to make any decision at all, or you're going to put it off till next Sunday. You're going to talk about it to the pastor on Wednesday. That's a response. And so what I really want to happen is this, and this is what I think that God wants. As Jesus came in and changed culture where he was so long ago, he still comes in and changes culture all the time. We have people that have come to Christ in the past several weeks. We have a lot of men that have come to Christ in the last several weeks. If we step up and take the authority that we're going to take, we're going to disciple them. If we deny it, they will drift away. And so we need Christians and we need lost people to get saved. We need Christians to step into the roles and assume the authority that God's given them so that we can change the world, that we can change a community. Let me say this. If Jesus was in South Jackson, South Jackson would change. If Jesus isn't in South Jackson, it's y'all's fault. And it's my fault. I've never seen any apostle in the writings and the scriptures, I've never heard of any Christian ever say this statement, that I'm doing too much for God. Uh, There's times that we know we have to get away, we have to spend time with Jesus, we have to get alone like Jesus did while he was here. But I've never heard anybody say, I'm doing too much for God. So let me just ask this, what role is God calling you to take in this church? What role is God calling you to take in your families? Men, some of you need to be, some of you need to wake up. I see you guys asleep right now. Ah, That shouldn't happen. No. Some of you need to be spiritual leaders in your home. And wake up. Women, some of you need to love your husband, walk with Jesus, and be the angel of the home. Children, obey your parents. You love Jesus, you obey him even when you don't want to. If people will begin to take the God-given authority in their life, we'll see a different church, we'll see a different community. Let's pray. God, I come to you now, Lord, and as we have a time to worship and respond, Lord, the altar is open. Uh, God, I pray right now, Lord, that uh, you move in people's hearts. God, the saddest thing would be, Lord, is if no one actually responded publicly, God, but everybody denied. Lord, the saddest thing would be is that people that came in here that are lost, Lord, they walked out lost. Or, Lord, people that were Christians when they came in here, they walked out just as dead inside as they did when they walked in. So, Lord, I pray, God, that you'll just light a fire in us. God, that uh, you'll change us, Lord, so that this week, God, we speak with authority, not from us, God, but from you. Lord, when we talk to our kids, when we talk to each other, when we talk to our friends, God, we speak with authority that can only come from the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, move, change us, work in us. God, let it happen in worship now. We pray it's all in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.